0: Hey Grace Chapel, good to be with you all today, wherever you might be joining us from. Uh, Before we get started, we'd like to take a moment and uh, mark a moment that has previously been announced but not yet celebrated. So I'm standing here with Bill Burke, our retiring executive pastor. Uh, Back in 2004, Grace Chapel was experiencing a lot of transition. We had just torn down many of our buildings and were beginning to rebuild our campus. We were seeing a steady, slow but steady stream of growth And we need somebody to help us, help me, manage all this growth and vitality. So Bill came to us from the business world after a a profitable, successful time uh, uh, with Ernst & Young. And he was eager to put his executive skills to work to serve the local church. So that was 2004, 15 years ago. And as they say, the rest is history. Uh, since that time, Grace has just about doubled in its budget and its, um, its ministries, its staff, and its congregation. And we now serve Greater Boston and the world from five campuses. And uh, Bill's organizational and financial and spiritual leadership have been foundational to all of that. Now, the wonderful thing about that is that Bill and I have enjoyed a wonderful partnership for these past 15 or so years. Uh, he is not only a high-capacity leader; he is a devoted pastor, uh, a fine man, and a faithful friend. And his wife Terry has been very much a part of the story, involved in all kinds of ways in serving and leading here at Grace Chapel as well. So we want to mark this moment. I'm going to give Bill a chance to say a word or two, and uh, then one of our elders will come and pray with us. So, Bill. <laughs>
1: This is such an improbable moment for me, for a man who, as a young adult, wasn't even interested in attending church, to now mark this moment as, as kind of beyond belief. But with a huge assist from a loving and patient and faithful wife, God first turned my heart towards him in faith, and he later gave me a love and passion for his local church, which I truly believe is the hope of the world. Eventually, I came to understand that God had given me a set of skills that might be useful to the right kind of church, one committed to excellence and to growth and to reaching people far from God. So in 2004, we traveled to Lexington, Massachusetts, and I met Brian and the leadership, and God immediately made it clear to me that helping lead this particular significant church was the mission he had been preparing me for all my life. And he made it equally clear that my call was to serve this uniquely gifted and anointed leader and preacher and friend. And it has been an amazing journey and opportunity. I am so thankful to Brian and to the leaders and the staff, and and seriously, to each of you for this privilege to serve the Lord and his church together in this place. It's been the biggest surprise of my life that this could have happened to me. And I especially need to thank my wife and my partner, Terry. She saw what God was doing in me before I ever did, and she encouraged me to listen for what He might be up to. And when the time came for us to make a hard and sacrificial choice, she was all in for me and for the kingdom, and I am truly a blessed man. This new season now provides an opportunity to spend more time with our family and also for me to work with my son on a startup business, uh, one we believe will allow us to, to serve the Lord and His kingdom in brand new ways. And I'd love to tell you more about that if you're interested. So, you'll still see us around here, and I feel so great about the next exciting chapter that God has in store for Grace Chapel, Grace Chapel and for each and every one of you. And I just do want to thank you again for this amazing privilege and blessing that you have extended to me. Thank you. Amen.
2: Bill, it's a a privilege to pray for you, both uh, as my friend and my mentor. Thank you. Father, we are are so blessed to have had an example uh, of a man of discipline, excellence, and courage. Lord, we saw how he epitomized serving behind the scenes faithfully, diligently, each and every Sunday, and during the week when people couldn't see. Yet, he also has the courage to stand up and take leadership when the time demands it. Lord, we are so grateful. And a man does not reach this point in his life without significant shaping from you. So we thank you and you praise you, Lord, for the time that he spent um, in the corporate world and being called out from there to serve you full time. And even from his early days in the Philadelphia area, learning um, with his father how to be part of a family business. And now he passes that on. Oh Lord, we are also so grateful for the caring and wonderful marriage that he he has with Terry and the example that they set to all of us. Lord, may you send this family forward as as Pastor Bill continues to be a minister. Doesn't matter what his title is, he will continue to be a minister to all the people around him and through his family and through all the generations. So we thank you and we praise you, Lord, with much love for what we have here and, and how you build your kingdom through such servants. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.
1: Thank you.
0: Well, thank you for that because you really have no idea (laughs) just how much Bill has done for for all of us over these many years. So you can thank Bill if you want. He'll be out in the lobby afterwards and would uh, love to stop and uh, say hi afterwards. The, The one thing that makes this announcement a little easier to make is that after a search of many, many months, we have found our next executive pastor. So we will announce that name in the coming week or so, and we'll be voting on him at our annual meeting in June. So we're grateful for that provision. And then finally, I want to give a quick shout out to a bunch of our students, middle school and high school students who are watching from the Foxborough campus today. They are finishing up their training retreat weekend as they get ready for their CCLE summer mission trips. So they're going to be worshiping and serving together down there in Foxborough. We just want to say hey, and uh, thanks for representing us and the Lord this summer as you go off to learn and serve uh, in various places around the country. We're proud of you and grateful for you. Well, a few years ago, uh, Karen and I found ourselves in New York City for a weekend and decided to try to catch a Broadway show. So we hopped into the discount ticket line there in Times Square and ended up seeing a musical called Tuck Everlasting, based on a young adult novel by the same title. Now, it tells the story of a 10-year-old girl named Winnie growing up in rural New Hampshire about 100 or so years ago. And like many young girls her age, she is frustrated with her parents and unhappy with her boring life, and so she decides to run away from home. And walking through the woods, she stumbles upon a young man drinking from a hidden spring beneath the tree. Now, he seems startled to see her, and when she asks for a drink from the spring, he he gets very nervous and, and, and won't let her come near it. Well, that encounter sets in motion a series of troubling events centered around that mysterious spring, which it turns out gives anyone who drinks from it immortality. They never age, and they cannot die. And 17-year-old Jesse Tuck and his family stumbled upon that spring nearly 100 years ago, and they haven't aged a day since. That sounds wonderful, but it turns out living forever isn't exactly everything they thought it was going to be and actually has had some disruptive impact on their lives and relationships. Well, meanwhile, um, a mysterious scheming man in a yellow suit finds out about this spring and he wants to, to buy the land so he can make a fortune selling the spring because people would pay any amount of money for eternal life. Well, the whole thing gets even more complicated when 17-year-old Jesse finds himself falling for 10-year-old Winnie, who is obviously too young to marry. But since he's not going to get any older, if she can just wait seven more years and drink from the spring, they could be married and live happily forever after. (laughs) The question is, how happy will they be if they never, ever Change. Now, I won't tell you how the story ends, but it leaves Winnie with a decision to make. Does she want to drink from the mysterious spring and live forever? Now, it's a popular kind of a timeless story because it raises the questions that every human being asks from time to time. Can we really believe in life after death? Is there such a thing as eternal life? And if so, what's it like? And how do we go there? And do we really want it? Well, this spring, we are exploring what Jesus has to say about eternal life. We've learned that eternal life isn't just longer life, it's better life. It's the life that God designed us to live, life that lived in relationship with Him. So for the past three or four weeks, we've been talking about about the better aspect of eternal life, that eternal life is more satisfying, more meaningful, more beautiful than a life that's lived purely for earthly things. In the next three weeks, beginning today, we're going to talk about the longer aspect of eternal life, life that goes on forever. Forever. We're going to talk about life beyond death. So today, we'll talk about if we can really believe in life after death. Next week, we'll talk about what happens to us right after we die. And in two weeks, we'll talk about what in the world we're going to be doing for all of eternity and where we might be doing it. And I'll tell you now, you may be surprised by some of the things we learn over the next few weeks. So each week, we've been listening in on conversations Jesus had with a variety of people in different circumstances. A rich young man, an older religious man, and a woman with a difficult past. Today, we're going to listen in on a conversation Jesus has with a couple of grieving sisters who have just lost their brother. It's the story of Lazarus, and it's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. So we'll read it together in just a moment. Let me just kind of set the scene so we know what's happening here. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, these siblings, were some of Jesus' best friends in the world, it seems, apart from the disciples. Jesus often retreated to their house in Bethany to rest and be refreshed. One day, Jesus gets word that his friend Lazarus is very sick. And for some reason, Jesus decides not to do anything about it. He stays where he is for two days, and then they begin the two-day journey to Bethany. So by the time Jesus arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has already died. Before he gets to the house, one of the sisters, Martha, comes rushing out to meet him on the road, and they have a conversation. Let's read the first part of the conversation together. Uh, I'll begin, and then you can respond in the uh, bold print, a yellow print. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. again Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, it might help to understand some of the burial customs in first-century Judaism. It was typical for the person to be laid to rest the very same day that they died. The body would be wrapped up in cloths and spices, and they would be laid in a tomb, usually cut into some rock. And the body would lay there for a year or so until it had completely decomposed. And then the bones would be gathered up and put into a stone box, a bone box. And you hear about archaeologists discovering these bone boxes. And then the tomb could be reused again. Such a deal you could get on a pre owned tomb, okay? (laughs) And people believed that the spirit or soul of the body, of the person, would hover near the body for about three days, and then it would depart and be gone. So by the time Jesus has arrived, we find that Lazarus has been dead for four days. So it was over, he was gone. And you can't blame Martha for bringing her grief and her disappointment and her confusion to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, and we know about those kinds of things because those are the same things that we find ourselves saying often in the wake of someone's passing. If only. If only they'd caught it sooner. If only they hadn't taken that road home. If only we knew how little time we had. Death does a number on us. And for Martha, the grief and confusion was even greater because she believed that Jesus could have done something. She'd seen his miracles. She knew he had special power from God. And so she's she's confused and perhaps hurt that he hadn't come sooner and done something. And we know how that feels too. Because often we wonder when we lose someone, why God didn't intervene and save our loved one. But even with all that hurt and confusion, Martha still believes. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you asked. Now, we don't know exactly what she meant by that. I don't think she knew exactly what she meant by that, because we find out later, she was not expecting him to rise from the dead. But she believed that Jesus could do something. Well, Jesus replies to Martha with what sounds to her like a religious cliche. Your brother will rise again. Perhaps like people at Awake today saying, they've gone on to a better place, or she's at peace now. So she responds to Jesus with an equally polite religious cliche. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. In other words, yeah, yeah, I know I'll see him again someday, but that doesn't do me any good now, Jesus. But then Jesus says something that's anything but polite or cliche. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Now, what in the world is that supposed to mean? I don't think Martha understood it any better than we do, so let's take a minute and see if we can try to understand what Jesus is saying here. So, so we should talk about death for a few minutes. How's that for fun, okay, on a spring Sunday? A counselor asked some children once to describe death. Gilda, age eight, said, when you die, they put you in a box and bury you because you don't look so good. (laughs) Marsha, age nine, said, when you die, you don't have to do homework in heaven unless your teacher is there. (laughs) They just keep showing up. And 10-year-old Raymond said, a good doctor can help you so you don't die. A bad doctor sends you to heaven. (laughs) Apologies to all those in the medical profession, okay? Okay. We think of death as an end, the end of life, the end of personality, the end of activity, the end of relationship. But that's not really what death means. Death means separation. Death is the separation of the body from the soul. Remember, to be a human being is to be both body and soul. We have a a material self and we have a spiritual self. You remember how God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, out of material stuff, but then he breathed into that material thing, that body, the breath of life. So it's the soul that animates the body, that gives us life, that enables us to relate to God and to each other in ways that transcend the physical. So death is the separation of the body from the soul. When we attend Awake, often the body is there to be viewed. And, and it looks like the person we used to know, but we know the person's not there. The soul has left the body. Next week we'll talk about where the soul goes after death. Resurrection is the belief that someday, body and soul will be reunited. Not just restored, but renewed, given new form, a form that's fit for eternal existence. We'll be given new bodies, bodies that never get sick or old, eyes that never fail, hair that never falls out, knees that don't need to be replaced. We will be our full, complete, and best selves for all eternity first century Judaism had this vague notion of some kind of life after death, but many Jews had come to believe in this idea of resurrection, that body and souls would be reunited someday at the end of the age. And so when Martha tells Jesus she believes in that, he presses her, helping her understand the full implications of what she's saying. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. First thing he tells her is that the one who believes in him will live even though they die. Jesus is talking there about physical death, the separation of soul from spirit, from, from body from soul. And that's what happened to Lazarus. That's what happens to all of us. Jesus is simply acknowledging the reality of physical death, he is facing it head on. But if we believe in the possibility of resurrection, It means that someday our body and soul can be reunited, restored, glorified. We'll become whole human beings again. So we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, but it means that we won't spend eternity drifting through the cosmos as disembodied spirits. We will have a physical existence. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life, uh, he's declaring victory over physical death. Even though we die physically, we can live again physically. It's a pretty outrageous statement. Who wouldn't want to live forever in a glorified body? But then Jesus goes on to say something even more outrageous. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Now what does that mean? You just said we would die, but now you're saying we'll never die. Well Jesus here is talking about spiritual death. If physical death is a separation of body from soul, spiritual death is a separation of the soul from God, from the source of life. Let's go back to the garden of Eden again. Remember, as God formed Adam and Eve and breathed into him the breath of life, God Adam was given both body and soul. But there was no death in the Garden of Eden. The first man and woman were made to live forever, to enjoy the garden, take care of it forever in relationship with God. It wasn't until they broke faith with God, until they declared their independence from God by eating from that one tree. That's when death entered into human experience. They cut themselves off from God, from the source of life. Think of it like a spacewalking astronaut severing their connection to the command module. The moment that connection is severed, it's only a matter of time before they run out of oxygen and die. And so it was for the first man and that first woman. The moment they broke faith with God, they began to die, physically and spiritually. Eventually, death would catch up with them as it catches up with every one of us. As awful as physical death is, spiritual death, to be separated from God, is far worse. Because when you're cut off from God, you're not only cut off from the source of life, You're cut off from everything that is good and true and beautiful in this universe. So when Jesus says whoever lives by believing in me will never die, he's declaring his victory over spiritual death. You don't ever have to be separated from me, Jesus says, and to Martha, and he says it to us. Not in this life and not in the life to come. Our bodies will die, but our spirits live as they were designed to. And next week we'll talk about what happens and Uh, The truth that to be absent from the body for a believer is to be present with the Lord. And so we might put it this way. For believers, death is a comma, not a period. Death is a comma, not a period. Death is a pause. It's an interruption on our way to the rest of the story. Do you believe this? Jesus asks Martha and us, it's a lot to believe. Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. I'm not sure she understood and believed everything Jesus had just said, but she believed something. She believed that Jesus could do something to overcome this thing called death. And so they continued on their way. And let's keep reading. And again, we'll read out loud together. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept before they arrived at the house the other sister Mary also comes running out to meet him and and Just like her sister, she is distressed and disappointed and confused. Lord, if you had been here, she says the very same thing. I find this very interesting because as we know from the rest of the Gospels, Mary and Martha, those sisters, were very different people, different temperaments, different kinds of relationships with Jesus. And yet they both had the same response to death, grief and anger and disappointment. Because that's how we all respond to death. Even though we know it's coming, death is an intruder. It's not welcome. We never come to terms with it. We never come to peace with it. We had a funeral here this past week for an older gentleman, a patriarch of one of our church families. Now he had lived a wonderfully full and rich life, served his country, raised a wonderful family, had a successful career, followed Jesus his whole life, served the church and Christian ministries for 50-some years, spent his final years at home with his family, children and grandchildren all around, and passed away relatively peacefully in his mid-90s. I mean, a full, good, rich life. So much to celebrate, so much to be thankful for. I mean, what more could a person ask for out of life than that? But there was still sadness. There were still tears. It still felt wrong. It felt too soon, even at 95 years old. The world will not be the same. For the friends and family of that man who is now gone. Death is an enemy. It's an intruder. It's a thief. It robs us of life and time and laughter and love and people. It wrecks us every time, and it should. And it wrecked Jesus. Jesus wept. Reread. why? He knew what was going to happen. He knew what he could do and what he was going to do. He wept for the, the sadness and the confusion, the disappointment and the loneliness that death brings to the world. Death is an enemy, an intruder, a thief. But who has an answer for it? Who can offer us hope and help in the face of such an enemy? There was a bit of a buzz on the news feed this week. The actor, Keanu Reeves, starring in the latest John Wick movie, was appearing on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And they got talking about his latest movie and all the people who die in the movie. And Colbert suddenly, out of the blue, looks at him and says, So, Keanu Reeves, what happens to us when we die? The actor pauses for a moment and says, I know that those we love will miss us very much. And the crowd lets out a collective, ah. And Colbert seems stunned by the answer. And he reaches across the desks and shakes his hand. And social media lights up with the profundity of this answer. (laughs) As if this was the answer we've all been waiting for, as if he solved the riddle of the universe. (laughs) Really? Is that our answer to death, that those we love will miss us very much? Is that the best we can do? Is that the best we can hope for? I mean, it's a nice sentiment, and I hope we're all missed very much. But it's not enough. And it wasn't enough for Jesus. Let's keep reading. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha. Then Jesus said, Didn't I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I like to think of this scene as showdown at the stone-cold tomb. It has that kind of feel to it, doesn't it? Jesus didn't just weep over death. John tells us twice that he was deeply moved. That's a very interesting word in the original language. We really can't even find a word to translate it. It actually describes the snort of a horse. That exhale, that flare of the nostrils when a horse is 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 riled up or agitated like a racehorse ready to bolt, Like, like like a warhorse ready to be ridden into battle. Jesus wasn't just sad, he was mad at this intruder, this enemy, this thief called death. And so like a warrior strapping on his sword, he says, take away the stone. But Lord, pragmatically minded Martha, replies, it will smell. And here we find the ugly reality of death. It's as if John and Jesus want us to face the facts one more time. Death stinks. It's the last and greatest enemy. And Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And that, my friend, is Jesus' promise, not just to Mary and Martha, but to every person who ever stands beside a grave. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. It doesn't mean your, per- your loved one's going to rise back up to life again. That's just not the way things work this, in this age. But it is a promise that, that Jesus has power, and that he can do something good. Even in that moment, even with that loss, that his power is already at work. He can give you and others the strength to carry on, not just to carry on, but to overcome. And it's a promise that someday, through faith, those who believe can be raised to life again and reunited again. You will see the glory of God. And then, like a drill sergeant barking out a command... He shouts the young man's name, Lazarus, come out. Notice, he's still Lazarus. He still goes by the same name, and he hears his name because he still lives, even though he's died. And moments later, the once dead man steps out of death's dark shadow and into the bright light of day, alive, himself, his grave clothes flapping in the breeze. This wasn't a resurrection. It was a resuscitation. Lazarus still has his earthly body, and it will give out on him again someday. But this is a sign. It is a sign That Jesus has power even over the grave. That death, this last and greatest enemy, is about to be destroyed. And just a few weeks later, it was. When Jesus himself came striding out of death's dark shadow and into the bright light of day. Not just resuscitated, but resurrected. And on that day, on that resurrection Sunday, on that Easter Sunday, the last and greatest enemy was defeated. And someday... At the resurrection of the righteous, death will be destroyed forever. Amen. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That was Jesus' question to Martha, and it's his question to us today. Do you believe this? Do you believe there is life beyond death? that we were made for more than this life. It's nice to know that those we love will miss us very much. But everything inside says there must be more than this. Do you believe that? Do you believe that life after death can be better than the life as we know it now? We'll talk more about the life to come in the next couple of weeks. But understand, when Jesus talks about eternal life, he's not talking about being stuck in the same body, in the same place, doing the same thing forever and ever and ever. He's talking about everything that is good and true and beautiful in human experience being taken to a whole new level. He's talking about enjoying all those things and all their fullness and all our fullness forever and ever with God and his people in worlds beyond imagining. That's what he's talking about. Do you believe that? And do you believe that Jesus can take you there? That he is the resurrection and life. Notice, he didn't ask Martha to believe that he was a great teacher or a wise prophet Or a social reformer. He asked her to believe if he was the resurrection and the life. That he and life with him gives us life now and in the life to come. Do you believe that? If you do, then you will live even though you die. In fact, you will never die. Because once you have discovered life with God, it's yours to enjoy with Him now and forever. Let's pray. We have a moment with uh, our eyes closed and our heads bowed to reflect on what we've just heard. And if it's possible you're hearing this message for the first time with real understanding, or you're hearing this message in the first time ready to actually believe it, and to receive life now and forever through a relationship with Christ, you can receive that life right now. You can enter into life with God today. And if you're making that decision, I'm gonna ask you just where you are to slip a hand up and look towards me Same on any of our campuses, just lift a hand up and your pastor will be watching where you are in the courtyard, just slip a hand up for a moment. If you're saying yes to the gift of eternal life today, just slip a hand up, look towards me, and I can be praying for you in the week to come. Thank you, amen.
1: Thank you, amen.
0: We thank you, Lord, for these moments with you and with each other and with your word, speaking to us about one of the most profound and mysterious experiences of life, death, and whatever lies beyond it. We thank you that we are not left to figure things out on our own, but you have, you have shown us the way. You have offered us life. You have made it possible and demonstrated your power by your own life and death and resurrection. We thank you for the fullness of life that so many of us have found in you, life that we know will go on forever. We thank you for the promise and the hope of seeing those we've lost in Christ who've gone before us. Encourage our hearts with these things. And Lord, I pray for those here today who said, yes, I believe, perhaps for the very first time with real understanding. May you assure them today that they have life now and forever, that they belong to you now and forever. That eternal life begins today. For those who are still considering that possibility, may you consider to speak your love and life into their lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.